Okay, well, uh, I'm Jim McCarthy with American Vapor Manufacturers, and uh, we are very, very pleased to have uh, today uh, esteemed journalist Jacob Greer. Um, Jacob uh, writes about tobacco, public policy, and other vices. Um, widely published author in places like Slate, Reason, The Atlantic, Washington Post, and long list of others, and has written a number of excellent books, uh, which we will put in our um, social media thread, which include uh, Smoking, Vaping, and the Creative Destruction of the Cigarette, um, another terrific book that I uh, uh, refer to all the time, which is Cocktails on Tap, The Art of Mixing Spirits and Beer. And he has a new book out, which is called The New Prohibition, The Dangerous Politics of Tobacco Control. So, Jacob, thank you very much. And there it is. Visual <laughs> visual plug. That's right. Well I done. I the visual. Exactly. Um, let me let me start there, Jacob. Ask, uh, what was the uh, inspiration, impetus of the book? How did you decide to write it and, and how did that come together? You know, it's kind of funny because uh, I wrote my previous book, The Rediscovery of Tobacco, back in 2019. And uh, the, the story I told myself when I was writing that book was, you know, I've been, I've been covering tobacco policy for years and I'm going to put it in a book and then I can kind of move on. Like <laughs> I'll, I'll have said everything I need to say in this book and I, maybe I won't write about it so much after the book comes out. Uh, and I could not have been more wrong, as it turns out. Uh, that came out in 2019. Uh, the past few years have obviously been extremely eventful in tobacco and nicotine policy. Uh, I ended up doing a lot more writing on the topic. Uh, and so towards the end of last year, I realized uh, that I actually had enough new articles and things that I'd written uh, that were thematically connected by this idea of how we're moving from uh, sort of a regulatory approach to tobacco to a more prohibitionist approach uh, to really have enough for a new book. Uh, and so... Yeah, I made the decision that, you know, instead of having these pieces scattered all over the web in different articles, in different publications, uh, it would make sense to bring them all together in one volume. Uh, and so that's what I came up with. It's, it's a pretty short, approachable book. I wrote a brand new introduction for it, so there is some new content there. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I think we need to bring attention to this idea that uh, we are moving in a more prohibitionist direction and this will have unintended consequences. Uh, and so that was my motivation for the book. How is the rollout going so far? It's exceeding my expectations, which is good. Um, you know, it, it is a niche public policy book. It's self-published. I'm not expecting uh, Harry Potter-like sales here. Uh, but, you know, my fear was always that this would do nothing. And, and it's actually done pretty well. Uh, get, it's getting sales, getting sales in multiple countries, which is great to see. Uh, and, and it's going steady. So, yeah, still trying to get the word out. Uh, so appreciate you having me on to do a podcast like this. Uh, but yeah, yeah the, uh, the response has been very positive so far. So it's been gratifying. We will, we will be sure to trumpet it far and wide. And, you know, we noticed a similar thing when um, uh, Noah Rothman's book came out recently, The New Puritans, uh, that there seems to be a kind of, I don't know, a, a, a reservoir of people who are thinking about prohibition, regulatory issues in that way, but just have no no authors or few columns, so few voices are articulating this kind of widely held perspective on it. And I have a hunch that your book is, is kind of resonating in that same way. Do you sense that too? Well, you know, it's been most popular with people in our space of uh, who are interested in tobacco policy and, um, you know, harm reduction. 
so yeah, trying, trying to get it out more. We got to do a great podcast that actually just came up today with uh, Richard Morrison of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, so that'll hopefully bring it out to that, that larger audience as well of people who are interested in you know, liberal economic ideas. I noticed you tweeted something the other day that that, uh, that you just touched on. Uh, you said um, this was talking about uh, how uh, smoking bans, um, you know, will not don't stop. Uh, and you wrote, uh, some of us warned for years that the enthusiasm for smoking bans would not stop when all the plausible externalities were addressed. Um, as predicted, outright prohibition is advancing as the policy goal. What tell us a little bit about, more about that thought. Yeah, you know, I've been covering this, uh, you know, tobacco use for a really long time, like going back to around, I want to say 2005, 2006, which is also when uh, smoking bans in bars and restaurants became very popular as a policy matter. And, and I really think that especially for people who are just now getting into these issues, maybe from a harm reduction standpoint, uh, you can't understand how we got where we are if you don't go back and read up on the smoking ban debates from the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, because really, <clears throat> a lot of the same techniques and strategies were in play, uh, and often even the same people. Uh, and so regardless of how you feel about smoking bans, and I've, I've written many times about how I'm, I'm glad for the direction that we've gone in, that you know we're not surrounded by tobacco smoke all the time, but the means by which we've gotten here uh, have been problematic. <clears throat> and uh, you know the, the way we passed these smoking bans was by a lot of uh, bad science and exaggerated science about what the harms of secondhand smoke could be, and by just completely disregarding uh, any rights of smokers to have spaces of their own or to have liberties of their own. Uh, those just got you know, written out of the conversation. Uh, and so I think we're seeing the same thing happen with vaping. And like when, when the debates over vaping started coming out, uh, it was clearly <clears throat> just a repeat of what we'd done you know, 10 years before with, with debates on secondhand smoke. Uh, <clears throat> and I think it's really an indictment of the field of tobacco control in that uh, they, they didn't say anything about a lot of science that was obviously bad and exaggerated because it was aligned with their political goals to let it go. And so I think that made the, the field uh, kind of relax its standards in terms of what it allowed. <clears throat> and, you know, people who didn't say anything then uh, are now having to deal with the consequences of, of creating these standard, low standards in the field, uh, which we see on vaping. And like, I, w I will say the, the probably about the only exception to this is Michael Siegel um, in, in Boston, who is a fantastic uh, blogger through this era of exaggerated secondhand smoke and now an advocate for harm reduction on vaping. He's one of the only ones who who was actually ahead of the curve and realizing where the field was going. He was our preceding guest on this very podcast. So it's there we go. <laughs> serendipitous. You would mention him. Right. Um, well, let's let's talk about that for a little bit deeper for a second because I you know I've noticed the same thing uh, about you know kind of the history of the way the progressive movement zeroes in on these different you know, aspects of, of social control. And you can look back at some of their enthusiasms in the past, all the way to alcohol prohibition, for example, or even, you know, the eugenics movement, if you want to talk wide aperture. But if you come more recently, that same thread, I think of, uh, I want to, I want to call it progressive social control. You correct me if I think, if you think that's inaccurate, but it, it manifests in other things too, like, you know, Tipper Gore's 
um, parents, you know, music resource council or the growth of um, all the, the groups that spun out of Ralph Nader's public citizen, like Center for Science and the Public Interest that went after everything from baby food, popcorn, soft drinks, pizza, beer commercials, Girl Scout cookies. And you can look back on those in retrospect, as I think most Americans do about alcohol prohibition and realize, hey, wait a second, that was ridiculously overreaching, contrary to you know our common values of individual liberty, completely you know disastrous as a matter of practical public policy, and maybe even just you know kind of flat out dumb. I mean, you look at some of the records that Tipper Gore wanted to ban, and it's just it's 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 beyond ludicrous. You could the fiction writer couldn't make it up, and yet today this same kind of mania is uh, afflicting. Uh, a group of what ought to be sober clinical scientists who are careful and measured. And there seems to be no reflection or even worry that, that, that maybe the path they're on, you know, has a lot of the same fatal conceits that uh, previous its, its predecessor um, prohibition movements had. Yeah, there's a, a great recent book on that I'd actually recommend uh, by historian Mark Schrad. Uh, it's called Smashing the Liquor Machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, really fantastic book covering uh, the era of the global temperance movements in the United States and abroad. Right. And, and one of his main points is that, you know, we when we think of prohibitionists today, we think of like rural Protestants who just hate people having fun and wanting, <laughs> wanting to restrict drinking, which... Yeah, you know, there was an element of that, but really it was a progressive movement. Right. And the, the people who pushed for alcohol prohibition, uh, they didn't talk about restricting people's liberties. They talked about how they were enhancing liberty by shutting down the exploitative liquor traffic. Yeah. And, you know, we can look back in hindsight and see you know, what was wrong with these policies. But if, if you look at the language that's used, yeah, uh, it very much reflects how progressives talk about tobacco today. Yeah. Where? There was an interesting. There was an interesting thread uh, took place a few days ago in in, in April. I don't know if you saw, but it was about how uh, uh, one of our leading voices ha- said, "You know, I wouldn't be opposed to uh, parents against vaping if it was, um, you know, parents against underage vaping. The way that there's, you know, it's mothers against mothers against drunk mothers against drunk driving focuses on, you know, protecting kids. But in fact, there's overlap there too. Like, you know, mothers against drunk driving in their own documentation sought to emulate tobacco-free kids in their policy leverage and in their ultimate goals and in their political strategy. I mean, there is a there is a through line between all of these movements that connects the, you know, I hate to do, pull out the cork board here, but, you know, Center for Science and the Public Interest, Ralph Nader's outfit, you know, Tipper Gore, I mean, all of those share this progressive impulse to try to, how would you put it, control what fellow Americans can read, see, consume, enjoy. Yeah. And, and I think part of the challenge on this is, you know, there, there are those elements of, of progressivism that have always been there where, uh, you know, they're very skeptical of capitalism and they are, they're, they have a very technocratic mindset where, you know, they think with the right experts in charge, like for example, at the FDA, you know, we, we can wisely guide people towards the right choices and take the right things off the market and put the right things on, uh, but there, there also are other elements of progressivism uh, that care a lot about bodily autonomy. 
And like, you know, we see this with most other drugs, like we've seen this with cannabis legalization, we're seeing it now with psychedelics, uh, with heart reduction on opioids, we see it with abortion, Uh, we see it with, uh, you know, the freedom to change your gender. Uh, You know, there's a lot of, there are deep threads in progressivism that recognize that people have liberty over their own bodies. And so I think part of our challenge in the uh, tobacco harm reduction space is, you know, to to make them think about tobacco and nicotine in this light, you know, in the light of bodily autonomy and people's freedom to make their own decisions rather than in the technocratic way of, you know, needing to restrict things. We've got a, we've got a thread in one of our AVM greatest hits threads about exactly that. Here's, you know, 20 reasons why progressive, the progressive caucus should, you know, cotton to the, to the vape movement and includes all that and more like, you know, entrepreneurs and helping, low-income minority Americans take control of their own health destiny. It's more affordable, you know, and, and, and on, on and on. Um, yeah, I mean, if you believe in the, in the slogan, my body, my choice, then yeah. it becomes self-evidently ridiculous to say an adult can't buy a strawberry-flavored e-cigarette. <laughs> well, I, well, listen, I mean, the, the, the PR guy in me is, 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 is tempted to ask. You, you live in Portland, Oregon, uh, one of the great meccas for progressivism in America, and I'm curious – to know how your fellow Portlandians react to your own advocacy and view on this, just in in ordinary interaction, do they do they are they open minded about it, or is there or is there a reflexive hostility? Uh, you know, I, I would say like ordinary people uh, tend to be very skeptical of these uh, vape bans, especially when you know. I mean, most of them don't think about it, but you know, <laughs> if it comes up in conversation. Uh, you know, I think most people want to see reasonable regulations in place, but they also believe that people should have the right to do you know, certain things with their body, make their own decisions. Uh, so, like, they're glad that there's not smoking in the restaurants they go to, uh, but they think there should be cigar bars. Like, they, they think it should be legal to have that. Uh, they think there should be hookah lounges. That, that, you know, that if you want to go to a hookah lounge, you should be able to do that as a consenting adult. Uh, that's that seems to be the the attitude among, you know, we'll say normal people, <laughs> and, and then there's the not normal people who are who are activists in tobacco control and who are you know in government, who who tend to be much more restrictive and they totally ignore you know any of these considerations. It's funny. I I, I live in the other great progressive bastion, uh, New York City, and yeah. um, they're not quite as not quite as tolerant here. I, I got in huge trouble recently. I was picking my daughter up at her school and. I was waiting across the street from the entrance of the school and I was vaping and some of the moms saw this. And I, I learned later from my nanny whisper network that the moms are very angry that I was vaping within eyesight of the children. So oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I had the reverse experience here a while back. I was, I was having a cigar on a, a bar patio and someone came out um, who, who, who had been there and like smelled the smoke. And oh. they just said, they just said, hey, I just wanted to thank you for smoking this cigar because I don't like smoking, but I love the smell of cigars. So keep right. at it. Like, oh, thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to provide this service. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny. Yeah, well, New York City may be losing its its tolerant street cred, I guess. Yeah. Um, let me ask a little bit more about, about, about the book. You know, you said something that, that really struck me uh, when I read it, which was that you argue it, it's hard to make a case for vapors when you quote don't view their autonomy as worthy of respect what what do you tell me a little more about what your idea is there oh it's the idea that 
you know, people view vaping debate only in terms of, you know, we must do something to save the children. Yeah. Uh, and they don't care at all about adults' freedom to make the choice uh, to vape or to vape with flavors. And, and that's totally inconsistent with how we treat other products. I mean, especially here in Oregon, like we're in a, a pretty egregious example. Uh, one, we're one of the first states to legalize recreational cannabis. And, you know, we have stores all over the state of Oregon selling brightly colored candy flavored cannabis gummies and like every kind of, you know, winking childlike reference you can put on, on a cannabis product. Like we've got it. And, and no, nobody's upset about that. And we're also one of the, you know, the biggest alcohol producers in the country in terms of, you know, having more breweries per capita than I think anywhere else in the United States. We've got tons right. of distillers and nobody's out here saying, oh, we can't have this, you know, donut flavored stout (laughs) or or all these, you know, flavored, you know, flavored alcohols. Like nobody blinks an eye at that or bats an eye at that. And uh, but yeah, but with nicotine, it's just the one exception. People forget everything they know about drug policy and they they don't care about adults at all. Well, how much of that, though, do you you think is a function of the coordinated public policy campaign that's gone in being funded by folks like Robert Wood Johnson, Gates Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, of course. I mean, it looks to me, again, sort of through my PR clinician's eyes, that those groups, you know, some years ago made a made a very concerted, deliberate, strategic effort to, you know, buy out or ingratiate themselves financially with lung association, heart association, cancer, they put up a whole you know, array of front groups, some existing, some new. Um, and they're even to my absolute, we'll talk a little more about this in a, in a bit perhaps, but the outright, outright payola to journalism outlets, which is mind bending to me. But that, that all you know, looks to me like a manufactured, concerted public campaign that has been, you know, in, in its own terms, pretty successful in orienting attitudes about this issue in the way that you describe. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. And, you know, I, I went to a county level hearing here in, uh, in Portland, you know, talk about a flavor ban Yeah, and in, in the people who show up and the way that the press covers it both, yeah. uh, reinforce this because you, you had, you had two groups of people there basically in dueling t-shirts, <laughs> you know, one was yeah. the, the prohibitionist, you know, which I assume were Bloomberg funded, right. uh, and then the other group was uh, like convenience and vape store owners. Right. And, and so all the press coverage about the debate, those are the two sides. It's yeah. you've got like the noble public health people who want us to ban the products. And then right. on the other side, you've got these vape shop owners who, who want to keep selling these deadly products and don't want to go out of business. And it becomes a, it becomes a public health versus business story. Mm-hmm. And nobody is the two groups who are completely excluded are vapors and smokers themselves and any of the like tons of you know very good scientists and public health experts who actually support harm reduction, they like they get yeah. no voice in these debates. Uh, so it's well, true, although, but let's talk about the, the grassroots numbers, though. Setting the activism aside for a second, I mean, it, it's, it's it strikes me when you look at the followings that some of our advocates, like Nick Green, has for his uh, YouTube. Uh, uh, review vape, vape reviews. It's you know it's it's in the six figures. I mean it's it's significant. You look at the the threads beneath a lot of the social media that advocates in our groups do, and it includes many 
many, many ordinary people from all over the country, from all walks of life. And you contrast that with the social media of these highly funded professional activist organizations, and there's just nothing there. They have no followers. They have no commentary on their threads, even for major announcements. They have to pay people to show up for their for their events. I mean, it's just all complete astroturf. And, you know, it's hard. Look, I'd love nothing more than for vapors to show up at, all, at every hearing the way they did on the mall for the We Vape, We Vote stuff. But, um, you know, they have other jobs and other pursuits, and they're doing productive things in their life. <laughs> Matt Myers, this is all he does. Like th- this guy's on a, on a religious mission with a you know twenty five million dollar bank account behind him. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think people realize how how that shift has happened. Like how much money there is now on the prohibitionist side. Yeah, you know it, it's 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 no longer the days of the uh, you know the underdogs against big tobacco. But they cling to that. They cling to that conceit, though, don't you? I mean, you can see, you can sense in the way they posture themselves that they're still, you know, out uh, questing against a giant dragon. Right. When it's actually, you know, multi-billionaire <laughs> Michael yeah. Bloomberg yeah. You know, dumping hundreds of millions of dollars in campaigns to shut down, you know, independent vaping shops in Montana. Right. Right. Um, Although I'm sure he fancies himself, you know, up against an is underdog, just up against the system. But he's had a really hard life. You got to you got to be sympathetic. To <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you said another curious thing along these lines in the book, which was um, you classified, you characterized some uh, tobacco harm reduction advocates as supporters of what you called prohibition light. And um, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. And, you know, we think about this a lot, too. We, uh, you know, AVM tries to create as wide and big a tent as we can for vape advocates. And um, even though we don't all see the issue the same way, but what do you mean by advocates that are prohibition light? Yes. Yeah, so this gets back to that technocratic mindset um, that, that I talked about earlier, where, you know, especially people who are in academia or perhaps in public policy and who come from a progressive background, uh, they, they have this tendency to you know, think about what the ideal policy would be or you know, what, what the policy would be if they were in charge. Uh, and so, you know, the biases there are one, you, you kind of make this assumption that the right decisions will be made because you're going to have the right people in charge and they're not going to have other incentives distracting them. Uh, and two, that the policy won't have a lot of unintended consequences. And, you know, when, when you pass the law, it will be obeyed. And, and I think both of those assumptions are very questionable. Um, you know, the people in power are, are not you, <laughs> not you yourself, Jim, but like, yeah, yeah. You know, not you, the, the technocrat imagining what this perfect policy would be. Uh, and, you know, it's, and if you've been to local meetings like I have or state level meetings or even federal Congress, uh, you know, the people making these decisions <laughs> aren't always the best informed. Uh, and, and they're facing lots of pressures, you know, you know, they care about being elected and reelected, you know, more than necessarily care about making the right policy choice. And people at the FDA, they have their own pressures as well, their own incentives. Uh, and it's not necessarily to do what's best for, for the people or to respect other people's liberties. Uh, and so, uh, and, and then to continue that, like, even if you do get the, the policy result you want, which in this case for, uh, tobacco, I think would, most people would be saying things like banning menthol cigarettes or stripping nicotine from, from cigarettes, uh, is then not really considering 
what the the impact of that will be on black markets and on law enforcement and just sort of hand waving that away and being like, oh, it's just another regulation. It's going to be fine, uh, which I think we're seeing in the states that have tried this. It's going to be it's going to be a lot harder than that. Well, I can commend the piece you did just a few days ago in Reason about uh, examining the Massachusetts uh, flavor ban, and 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 tell us tell us about that. I, I, if I recall, you found it actually did very little in terms of accomplishing the goals on its own terms, and made all the problems it was aiming to solve demonstrably worse. Yeah, uh, it, it's pretty clear. Like Massachusetts is, uh, they were the first state to pass a flavor ban statewide on both e-cigarettes and and cigarette, like basically every tobacco product you can name, it's it's illegal in flavors in Massachusetts. Um, and they're also, in a way, very admirably transparent, uh, where they have a they call it the multi agency task force. You know, of all the all the police agencies and revenue agencies that are involved in tax collection, there they publish an annual report, uh, and it's available publicly. It's you know about fifteen pages long, uh, and it's a great resource because you can. You can actually go in there and like read firsthand what they're doing, and uh, yeah, they, they have the numbers, and they, they <laughs> the number of seizures of now illegal products are you know increasing year over year by dramatic amounts. Uh, my my favorite uh, put that in quotes. But my favorite part of the uh, of the report is where they they talk about their future challenges, and one of the challenges they mention is just running out of storage space because their warehouse is too small to hold all of the seized flavored tobacco products that they're taking away. Uh, so yeah, it's just a clear demonstration that prohibition is going to be a lot harder than uh, you know the technocrats think it's going to be. And, and so to go back to that, I would say, uh, you know, I call it prohibition light, which is where we're like, we're picking and choosing the products we're going to prohibit, but we're going to allow the, the good ones on. Yeah. Uh, it's such a complicated message to get across to people, you know, like, yeah. most people, including legislators, aren't going to get deep in the weeds of, you know, reading research papers. Yeah, uh, an argument that is not complicated and that resonates with people, especially in the United States, where we have a strong tradition of in- individual liberty, is respect yeah. and autonomy, respect people's right to choose. Uh, and so, when when people who who have that more technocratic approach and want to prohibit certain products, you know, do this prohibition light, I really think they're undercutting the arguments of the whole movement because uh, the strongest argument we have is not technocratic. It's that adults should be able to be free to choose. You know, it's funny, there, there, there seems to be, you know, not, not only any sort of self-awareness about, you know, the hubris in that view or the possibility that it might be mistaken um, or that others may differ with it, but, 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 but also they seem oblivious to the futility of those policies. I mean, and this is, again, a through line that, that you know, I've noticed throughout a lot of these progressive manias about food and beverage um, or entertainment, the regulations don't work on the face of them. I mean, just to take the Tipper Gore example, for, for example, they put the, the they achieve putting the warning sticker on uh, records, okay? The parental explicit language warning sticker. That was their big legislative accomplishment. So they won. But guess what? The, the, the sticker's still there. It's still, but it, when you put that sticker on the product, it sells more of the product. Right. And and the record companies perversely like it because they can sell those the 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 tracks that have that sticker on it for more money than the than the redacted version of the song. <laughs> right. And and but there, and there's tons of examples. I mean again going back to alcohol prohibitions the one most Americans I think are, are familiar with but you'd think at some point 
having touched the stove a hundred times, they'd realize it was hot. Why? Why? For the please enlighten us. Are they so blinkered about the actual outcomes of the policies that they've devoted their whole life to achieving? Yeah, and it's particularly astonishing where I live in Portland because we, Oregon is arguably the most liberal place in the world for drug policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've we've got a great you know alcohol scene in terms of brewing, distilling, bars, whatever. We just legalized cocktails to go permanently. Uh, we were the, one of the first states to legalize recreational cannabis. Uh, we've decriminalized nearly all drugs. We're in the process of enabling uh, legal psychedelic therapy. Like, you name it, we are a front runner, <laughs> and yet yeah. we're banning flavored e-cigarettes statewide. That's a, that's a bill that's going on. And it's, the, the disconnect is, is really astonishing. But you'd think that, you'd think that the, the, the pro, let's just call it the, I don't know, the Puritan movement or the prohibition advocates, you'd think that they would be horrified to see that the policies they're putting in place are leading to black markets, reduced taxation revenue, uh, more access to young people, more people being hurt by, uh, you know, adulterated or, or, you know, black market knockoff products. I mean, these are things that they seem to care about a lot. Why do they not, does it not bother them when they see those outcomes? Yeah, I think it's, it really just comes down to mood affiliation. Uh, you know, they, they just don't like tobacco and nicotine. They have a, they have a very 1990s mindset about it, which I think is the case for a lot of people. Like they, their image of nicotine and tobacco is, you know, the, the dishonesty of the big tobacco companies in the 1990s and, yeah. you know, the small underdogs, you know, bringing the good science against them. And that's just not the case anymore. Uh, well, I'm sort of struck by, I'm struck by, you're making me think of something, you know, that, that we think about a lot, which is that so many of the, of the, kind of luminaries of the anti-vape movement like Matt Myers, Bloomberg himself, Mitch Zeller, Meredith Berkman at PAVE are all kind of of that generation of 90s progressives, um, many of whom came you know right out of Ralph Nader's movement. I mean, Mitch Zeller worked for Center for Science and the Public Interest. Meredith Berkman is the daughter-in-law of uh, Morton Mintz, one of the greatest progressive journalists of the, that, you know, the late 20th century. Um, I mean, it's, I guess it's a Twitter cliche to call that boomer a boomer mentality, but it mm-hmm. is pretty striking that all of these leading thinkers are all from that same generation, whereas you know, a lot of the folks that are in, in tobacco harm reduction seem, I guess, maybe a generation ahead of that. Is that am I making too much of that? I don't think so. That's actually one of the things that's given me optimism, uh, you know, about, you know, however bad things look in the short term for tobacco harm reduction and nicotine. Uh, I think there is that factor of um, generational change and, you know, putting it bluntly, you know, for, for science in general, not just for, for the issues we, we're talking about, but like, you know, ideas don't always win by convincing people. Sometimes ideas win by the older generations retiring and dying off. And yeah. I think that is one thing that gives me optimism is that once once that generation finally retires or, or leaves the scene, uh, we might have an opportunity for you know younger people to come in and and be a little more objective about you know what the actual risk and harms of nicotine are, especially compared to other drugs that are available. Um, 
Well, you know, if, you, if you'll indulge me, I want to push my own buttons for a moment and yeah. just to loop back on the journalism and we're you know, talking about sort of the obliviousness to the harms that are being caused. And, you know, if, as readers of our Twitter feed will, will be familiar, we, we are often trying to confront news outlets about slanted coverage and omitting voices from the tobacco harm reduction movement or from the, even from the vape industry. Um, and even, you know, strikingly, confronting them on factual errors, like smoking gun, erroneous reporting. And so many of these outlets just, I mean, turn a blind eye is too gentle. They, 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 they won't even engage with it at all. And I'm talking about places that posture themselves as responsible, transparent news organizations like the New York Times or NPR or Associated Press or Politico. They just... We present them with smoking gun factual errors, clear breaches in their own journalism guidelines, and they just will not will not engage in any dialogue about it. I mean, that 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 to me is a kind of willful, willful, you know, irresponsibility. Yeah, it's that, and it's also just laziness. Yeah. And it's that's, the Occam's, <laughs> that's Occam's razor. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I've confronted, and you know about almost two decades of writing about these issues is just, you know, going back to the smoking ban debates and, you know, just reading articles that, that would come out on the topic and just being amazed at like, oh, this, this journalist is just lazy. <laughs> they, they went to their let, one. Let me, let me give them a little credit though. Cause I, you know, I suspect that, that, that a lot of the writers that are covering these issues, especially, you know, FDA beat writers, for example, um, actually have a kind of sympathy for the public health movement and the, you know, the progressive assumptions of public health authorities. Um, and they cover it in a sympathetic way because they share those values. Is that, I mean, am I, am I imagining that or do you sense that too? No, I think that's, that's accurate for sure. Yeah. And, and, and again, it goes back to that nineties mindset of the you know, skepticism of big business and big tobacco in particular. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things I've been, I've been bringing up in, in interviews about the book is how in you don't have to trust big tobacco, but you you should just look at incentives. And the incentives that big tobacco had in the 1990s are drastically different from the ones they have now. And and there's very good reasons for that. You know, one, uh, in the 1990s, all the science was against smoking. <laughs> mm -hmm. Big tobacco had no incentive to do or promote good science because it was all against them. Uh, that's no longer the case because now there actually are much safer sources of nicotine that consumers actually enjoy using like vaping and snus yeah. and, and the long list of other harm reduction products. So that's one reason incentives have changed. I mean, but, it, but it's, it's interesting that, the, that the, this issue, tobacco harm reduction, I think is, it can be distinguished from a lot of those other food and beverage and you know, entertainment uh, campaigns that that movement embarked on. Because in this case, by by depriving Americans of, of, of vaping, it's causing an active harm. So, you know, it, if, the, if the public health movement likes the precautionary principle that we shouldn't put something on the market until we know it's safe, if that's one of their, you know, moral lodestars, in this case, it doesn't quite work because depriving Americans of that product means that they're going back to cigarettes. I mean, there was a paper that came out recently that had an estimate of, you know, the life years that were being you know, uh, cause I think Kasa had a tweet about it, which we'll put in our thread. But the point I'm making is that it, is that their 
policies as as they're being executed now are causing active harm. And that 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 to me, you'd think that would a light bulb might go off. Like, you know, if you stop eating Big Macs or stop eating drinking big gulps, you know, nothing bad's gonna happen to you. But you take <laughs> vaping away from people and they're gonna go back to smoking cigarettes. Yeah, and, and there's a, another person I've talked to who uses the analogy <clears throat> of uh, Volvo cars uh, and, and comparing this to Swedish snus, you know, two, two Swedish companies, and how Volvo was, uh, you know, a leader in automobile safety. And, you know, regulators follow suit and, you know, talking about seatbelts. You know, yeah. you could say, you could accurately say driving is an inherently risky activity. People do too much of it. You know, maybe, maybe we should outlaw safety features so people are discouraged from using it. Yeah. <laughs> It would yeah, be a terrible yeah. argument, but we see yeah. this, but nobody thinks about, you know, nicotine use that way where, you know, we say, hey, people are going to use nicotine. Maybe they should or shouldn't. Maybe, maybe it's not healthy, but some percentage of the population is going to do this. You know, we should make it as safe as possible. And, you know, they don't take that approach. An argument which resonates with them, if you're talking about, you know, STDs or, you know, illicit drugs Absolutely. or... <laughs> You know they'll 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 stand on a on a you know on, on a soapbox if, if it you know take the the group vital strategies they've got they got content galore sticking up for for harm reduction in all these other areas and yet somehow they've done mental gymnastics to disqualify vaping from that you know scheme right and like they they would obviously not be opposed to you know handing out condoms to encourage safe sex but if somebody tried in the United States, which, which they're doing in Britain right now of, you know, actually giving out e-cigarettes to homeless smokers to encourage them to take up a safer product. Like the, yeah. people would absolutely lose their minds in the U S. Um, I promise this will be the last question on, on media criticism, but I, right. but I, but I, I want to make sure we don't lose it. it, it it's w- one of the, one of the sort of white whales that we've been chasing at AVM is the way that a lot of these big, uh, uh progressive foundations are funding the journalism on this subject, and I'm talking Bloomberg, Robert Wood Johnson, Gates Foundation, are giving big dollar sums. And it seems like every news outlet that we research, uh, we find more of it. You know, we started out, we found that Stat News, which is run by, you know, ex-New York Times star uh, Rick Burke, is getting untold sums. Uh, Then we discovered that uh, NPR is getting money. Um, Uh... I believe we found that at uh, Associated Press is also getting money. Um, and then most recently we discovered um, uh, Cameron will remind me in, in the thread here, but the point is they're, they're, they're getting tens of millions of dollars. Oh, CNN is getting huge donations. Also, I'm talking millions of dollars, millions of dollars to cover this issue of which they're an active, the donors aren't like an active part of the topic. Um, so we went to the, you know, NPR's got a, very well-respected uh, public editor, an ombudsman, um, whose name is um, Kelly, uh, she's with uh, Pointer Institute, Kelly McBride, and asked her like, hey, wait a second, this is like, seems like a cardinal sin in journalism. Could you kindly explain how NPR justifies taking millions of dollars from Robert Wood Johnson, which has an ideological and financial stake in the issue? They're investors in the manufacturers of Nicorette gum. And she wouldn't even, wouldn't even, wouldn't even engage with us. And then we looked a little deeper. Guess what? Her organization, Pointer Institute, they get money from Robert Wood Johnson too. And so I guess, I don't know. You tell me, is this, are we chasing a white whale or, because that strikes me as like an absolute 
cut and dried, no doubt about it, journalism sin. You're, but you're a journalist. I'm, I'm just a PR flack. <laughs> it's so complicated. Um, like I, on the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of in favor of anything that brings money into journalism right now <laughs> because we need it. Um, but yeah, and, and it's kind of like think tanks, which when I started out in the think tank world too, where, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's self-selection. Like I, 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 I think most journalists are, are honest regardless of where the funding ultimately comes from, but it, it does affect who gets attracted to the position in the first place. So like, you know, I used to work in think tanks and, you know, most think tanks are, are getting private funding. And, and so it, it doesn't work in the sense that, uh, you know, you get, at least on a good think tank, there are also plenty of front groups. <laughs> but, you know, in, in general, you, you know, you don't get, take money from X industry and then you, you come in with the mindset, I'm here to promote X industry and they're going to look over my writing and make sure I'm saying the right things. But it is more of a self-selection effect. Like, you know, if, if you were a think tank who was, you know, getting lots of money from oil companies, then you might be the person who's skeptical of global warming. And so you're going to go work for that think tank. Uh, and, and I think there, it's probably more, more than an explicit quid pro quo. It's probably more like, hey, we're funding uh, your journalism outfit, you know, find somebody to report on these issues. And then the person attracted to that position, you know, they don't view themselves as, you know, conflicted, but you know, they are someone who's probably going to be aligned with, you know, that sort of narrative more than, you know, say a journalist for like me for Reason Magazine is going to be. Um, I guess maybe we could find a concurrence on this question. You know, at the least, it seems to me those outlets should disclose in a shirt tail on those articles that they're getting funding from an organization that has a dog in the fight. I mean, is that asking too much? I, I think if they're, uh, especially if they're like a, Quoting affiliated organizations, yeah, like if if they're directly involved, I would I would certainly agree with that. And I think I think you guys succeeded in like getting Stat News to add get that added to <laughs> to one of their articles at one point. Uh, yeah, uh, they they claim that they claim they had the shirt tail in there prior to us complaining, but uh, there's some dispute <laughs> there's some dispute about that. But I, I mean, at least they had the at least they had the bare minimum integrity, you know, to respond and engage with us. You know, NPR, mm-hmm. CNN, Associated Press. Have had nothing to say for themselves. It's just absolutely incredible to me. Um, let's switch gears for a second. So I want to talk yeah. about how we can, uh, how our movement and uh, can be more persuasive and evangelizing. You know, our our, our mutual pal Radley Balco, one of the great libertarian journalists on um, criminal justice issues, has a great saying he coined, which is that libertarianism happens to people. You know, you go through <laughs> your life and then you encounter you know, the, the, the boot of the state. And suddenly you realize, Hey, wait a second. Um, and I, I sense that libertarianism is happening to a lot of, you know, ordinary vapors who may not have thought about politics or public policy or anything like that. Um, but are suddenly seeing in stark relief, just, just how authoritarian and oppressive, uh, agencies like FDA can be and how the rantings of the likes of Dick Durbin can have an impact in their day-to-day lives. But, I don't know. Do you, you, you tell me what, how, how do you, how do you, how do you see the evangelizing for tobacco harm reduction? How, how should we be going about that? Uh, for me, I think it's uh, getting people on the left and, and progressives to like, just think about this in a consistent way and in saying like, Hey, you believe 
this when it comes to bodily autonomy on these other issues, or you believe this when it comes to harm reduction on opioids or sexually transmitted infections. Like you, you already have these ideas. How would you apply them to this case? And like, let me make you think about that. And so actually one of the things I've most enjoyed about writing on these issues over the years is like, you know, I love publishing in Reason Magazine, great libertarian publication. Uh, but I'll tell you what I love even more is getting to make those same arguments in the Atlantic or in Slate, you know, Slate especially. Is, you know, You've written very, for the nation, I think, haven't you? No, I haven't gotten the nation. Okay. But I've, I've been in Slate and, you know, the, it, it's definitely kind of mind boggling for some of their readers when they suddenly see this yeah. like pro vaping article come out or, yeah. you know, an expose on secondhand smoke science. That, uh, yeah. And so I actually really like uh, getting articles placed in, in those kind of publications and, and so I think that would be some of my advice is, you know, sometimes you just got to take your byline wherever you can get it. And that means in the case of vaping, that often means like a right leaning website where you're, you're largely preaching to the choir and there's, and there's still good in that, but, you know, try to write your arguments and get your pitches in front of, you know, people at less friendly publications. And, and you know, a lot of the time it fails. Like <laughs> there, oh. there's a science editor who like rejected me for the longest time. Uh, and then she left and a new editor came in and this new editor was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And so that's how I ended up, you know, writing all, all these articles for Slate. Uh, so yeah. it takes time, but it can happen. Well, we, yeah, we, we, we try to pitch that stuff a lot. And it's funny that the articles that may, that have the most resonance are ones like um, the great piece that uh, Mark Gunther did in uh, Philanthropy Magazine going after Bloomberg. And mm -hmm. Um, you know, we have, we also have a thread, which we'll put it, we'll put up again of all the various national columnists and commentators who've written pro vape, you know, commentary. And it's, it's incredible to me because it, it spans the entire ideological spectrum. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find another issue in, you know, in American public policy that has that wide a range of concurrence. Um, and so showing that to, you know, these larger establishment media publications, which I think kind of lean sympathetically toward the, toward the progressive outlook, has a huge impact, you know, far more than anything else we can say or even ordinary vapors. I mean, that because it, it comes with the imprimatur that it's OK to cover it in this way. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing that might be worth highlighting is, you know, I've I've personally seen people who are, like you said, you know, wouldn't consider themselves necessarily libertarian before. Uh, might have been somewhat left-leaning, uh, and then their vape shop gets closed down or they lose access to their vapes, and they see this accurately as something that's being done to them by Democrats and by progressives. Yeah. Uh, and so I would, I would highlight those people because they are actually, you know, being driven to the right, being driven to Trump. And, yeah. like, speaking for myself here, I... <laughs> as much as I disagree with Democrats on tobacco policy, like I endorse Joe Biden, I vote Democrat. I don't want to see these people moving to the right, uh, just be over this vape issue. I'd much rather see progressives and Democrats, you know, take a harm reduction and liberal approach. And, and so, yeah, it's part of my work is trying to convince people like you should be liberal <laughs> on, on tobacco and you're not right now. Well, well, right. And listen, let me let me take a swing at, at, at the right. We've knocked progressives a lot in this chat, but, uh, you know, we've had a very hard time persuading members of Congress, let's say, or, you know, leading publications that are associated with the with conservative movement uh, to get on board. I tried to persuade, a, you know, a good 
good contact of ours at Heritage Foundation, for example. And for a lot of right-wingers, vaping is also anathema. And they have these kind of reflexive assumptions about it, that it's you know, lowbrow and it, they have class assumptions. It also offends their, I don't know, sort of morally upright church going, um, <laughs> you know, self-conception. I mean, there's a lot of right. reflexive hostility that, that the conservative movement has toward vaping. Now to be sure places like national review have, have been terrific. Wall Street Journal editorial board stuck up for us. That's great. Um, but we've been, we've been banging our head against the wall at Fox news, for example, for, I don't know, two years now and can't get the time of day. So there are, there are parts of the right wing, you know, conservative movement that are, that are hostile. Tell me if you've noticed that too. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that's accurate. Like there's certain Mitt Romney certainly is, would be, uh, you know, a key example, uh, yeah. you know, you know, I hate to say it. He's one, he's one of my, you know, in many ways, one of my favorite people in the Republican party, but unfortunately again, has this blind spot when it comes to, you know, individual liberty on vaping, um, yeah, I, I, it, it is interesting. You know, I've, I've actually, I was invited once to appear on the Tucker Carlson show, but it was, but it was to talk about um, menthol ban. They right. <laughs> definitely nothing about vaping, and I turned it down because I think he's an abhorrent person. But, uh, <laughs> but I did at least get that one invitation. He, listen, he's a fellow tobacco harm reduction advocate. He's got his, um, what does he do? He, I think he uses the pouches and he says, he says positive things about nicotine all the time. I mean, I, I, you know, there's no one else at that level who's saying things like that. Surely that's a, surely that's a, a check in his favor. Yeah. I'll, I'll give him that one check, but it's, it's outweighed by, <laughs> by uh, a lot of other things. Um, you just tell, you just told us we should be preaching to the, where the sinners are. <laughs> well, and that's the problem is like, you know, I don't want to give them someone like that, the argument. And it, and it sucks that, you know, if, if the only person we can point to making this case is someone like Tucker Carlson, who is, you know, abhorrent in so many other ways. And so we need people, other people on the right and on the left to, you know, to take up this issue. Well, that's what I, that's what I'm thinking too. And, you know, it's the reason I point out that so, so many of the columnists, you know, covered this spectrum. I, I wonder if maybe the vape movement needs to be kind of careful what we wish for, because, you know, we want to be ecumenical. And I think one of our greatest, you know, philosophical strengths and grassroots strengths is that we represent such a wide cross section of American voters in every, you know, economic strata and ideological, um, you know, leaning. And that, that to me is a strong movement. And if we get too kind of drawn into the magnetic pole of left versus right, we may cut off our nose to spite our face. Um, I mean, on the other hand, we'd have more relevance and more leverage than we do now, but is that a, is that a Faustian bargain? Yeah, it's tough. You know, like, and it's always a hard question on where to, where to draw that line. And like, I, I'm definitely sympathetic to the idea that you should talk to anyone who wants to talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for the, yeah, for the most part. Um, and you know, we'll, take, we'll take for example the congr- the new Congressional Harm Reduction Caucus that um, that just cropped up, or the fact that the the chairman of the Oversight Committee, uh, Congressman Comer, is now going to be grilling FDA on its vape policy. Like I'm, I was very enthused when I saw that, and I think those those are great things. And at last, we're getting you know some advocacy at that level. But on the other hand. Both of those efforts were, you know, swiftly attacked by, you know, the the, the Bloomberg front group Armada um, and anathematized as a right wing project. Um, 
So how do you view those? I mean, are, are those good developments or are they, do they need to be bipartisan or not at all? Yeah, I mean, I think they're good, but yeah, I think they're good. A bipartisan would be better. I don't know how we get there. Um, yeah, and certainly not, like, I, I don't want to burn bridges on, <laughs> on the right, or at least not most of the right. But, you know, for me, it comes down to like being aware of yeah. you know, how you're being used as a source um, and, and just, you know, who you're dealing with. So like, if I get invited on a, on a talk show or, or any kind of outlet, like I always do a little bit of background check and like, yeah, you know, there could be, there's a case for engaging with almost everyone. If you can challenge them on their worst views, I don't want to be used as a distraction. Um, for example, like if, if Tucker Carlson had me on to talk about a menthol ban to send the message that Democrats are the real racists, <laughs> I don't think I'm actually advancing the cause by playing that role, even though I think a menthol ban is a bad policy. Um, but if I can be invited, if I can be invited on, you know, a left-leaning news show to challenge the host on their support for prohibitionist policies, then that's, that's a very useful thing to do. When, when, when we, when we get around to pitching democracy now, you'll be the top of our suggested <laughs> guest. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you know, you're making me think maybe we could take a page out of your, you know, your, your friends in the, in the um, liquor spirits industry, you know, they, we did a long thread about, all of the anti-vaping members of Congress. And I was I was astounded to see that a lot of them are made their fortunes in uh, liquor and f- wine and beer. The, I mean, the, the chairman of the Congressional Whiskey Caucus, he's the founder of the Congressional Whiskey Caucus, hates vapes with the heat of a thousand suns. And it's infu- inf- infuriating. But we looked at the, at the Whiskey Caucus and sure enough, it's got like, you know, this wide ecumenical, far reaching, like nothing gets members of Congress together more than like, you know, throwing back some, you know, blended scotch. Um, but there's a lesson, I think, for the vaping movement, that the t- tobacco harm reduction movement could be just as ecumenical if we, you know, if we recruited it and, and, and it, and it, you know, the, the, the bipartisan appeal of the topic was apparent to some Democrats. Yeah, and you know, I think where we weirdly where we might get that is if FDA, if FDA starts overstepping and going after premium cigars, uh, which, which is the one product in the tobacco nicotine space that I feel like nobody wants to touch. Like even Beverly Hills was like, "Hey, we're banning all tobacco sales," but oh, we, we can't we can't put our nice cigar lounges out of business. That that would and be put, wrong. Put a fine point on that. Why 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 do you think that's so? I think it's a class thing. Like people, it's. People, you know, see cigar smoking as an upscale activity, uh, and and there it is objectively, you know, less harmful than cigarette smoking, but certainly not uh, certainly higher risk than say vaping or snooze, you know, or other forms of consuming nicotine. But yeah, people see it as an occasional celebratory thing to do, and and I and I think a lot of people viscerally feel that uh, that personal liberty argument because either they themselves have occasionally enjoyed a cigar or like their uncle occasionally enjoys a cigar and they're like, well, no, of course an adult should be able to do that. That would be ridiculous to restrict this. But the hard part, hard part is making that connection to the same thing. Well, uh, well, why should an adult be able to enjoy a strawberry nicotine vape then? (laughs) Well, listen, I mean, we've been appealing to several members of the progressive caucus um, some of their leading luminaries, like for example, there was that great article in Filter Magazine a few months back about how a local vape shop in Harlem had been, um, you know, d- uh, 
crushed by state and, and federal vaping regs. And not only did it crush a small entrepreneurial woman run business, but the clientele of that shop was, you know, the, probably the most ethnically diverse, um, neighborhood in America. And many of those customers were, you know, low income folks and they were getting off of cigarettes through nicotine vaping. And that was the, you know, the calling of the vape shop owner. I mean, you couldn't script an example that would seem more appealing for the a member of Congress from that district who is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> and we've been appealing to them like, hey, you know, this is like, speaking of checking boxes, this has got every single one of your boxes checked. You know, please don't tell me that, you know, Michael Bloomberg's hypnotic appeal is so persuasive that you, you know, are willing to abandon your constituents that are facing this. Um, Especially since, since AOC is a former bartender, we have that in common. And I'm like, you know what we do yes. for a living is we make uh, a toxin, toxic substance more appealing through flavor. <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. that, is our, that is our job at the end of the day. So, yeah. you know, I feel like, uh, yeah, there should be some sympathy there. You'd think, yeah. And, and maybe I'm waiting for the light bulb to go off. I mean, I think a key is something you said earlier, which is, you know, trying to get some leading thinkers within that movement, let's just call it the you know progressive journalism, you know, space to weigh in and say, hey, wait a second, guys, maybe we've been looking at this the wrong way. You know, one of these sort of contrarian, Matt Iglesias, you know, Ezra Klein type pieces that says, pull the needle off the record player for a second here, because the way we've been driving this issue is problematic. And I, I'm hoping that if a, a piece like that might kind of shatter this edifice that's been constructed by Bloomberg at all. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty much the hope of <laughs> why, why I wrote my, my most recent book was, you know, to, to get the idea out there in a, in a packaged way. Uh, obviously, I hope the book, book sells because that means people are reading it and I make a small amount of money on it. Uh, but yeah, the, the ideal for me would be that, you know, some larger journalist, you know, runs with this idea and actually analyzes it a little more. Or how about a Dick Durbin staffer or an <laughs> AOC chief of staff? Right. Or we just need, we just need one or two light bulbs on Capitol Hill to go <laughs> off after reading the book, Jacob. Right. I, I would, I would love it. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we wrap it up there? Hold up the book again. So our readers can see our viewers can see it. Terrific. Uh, and we will, you, you can, you can knock this out in a day. <laughs> you bet. And we'll put the, uh, we'll put the link to the book in our thread and, um, keep up the great work. We're, we're, we're obviously huge fans and, uh, voices like yours are really crucial and very, very much appreciated. So, um, thank you for both for making time and for all the great work you do. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. It's uh, really glad to be here and thanks for having me on. Okay. Sounds good. We'll do it again. Thanks, Jacob. Right. Sounds good. Bye.